We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> you talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Away we go, episode 39 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Wednesday, April 14th, 2021. It is the day on which your boy, yours truly, is supposed to start getting vaccinated. Yes, I am supposed to receive my first of two shots late Wednesday morning at an undisclosed Walgreens. It is a two-shot vaccine. It's not the Johnson & Johnson one-shot vaccine. That's the vaccine that a bunch of the Nationals got on Monday. And who knew that the Johnson and Johnson vaccine included a horse tranquilizer because the Nationals looked terrible on Tuesday night. They looked asleep on Tuesday night. A 14-3 loss at the St. Louis Cardinals. Steven Strasburg brutal. Luis Avilan horrendous. Nats did very little offensively. Were sloppy defensively. You know, we had a proud of the boys theme to Tuesday's installment of the Al Galdi podcast, in no small part because of that terrific 5-2 Nats win 
at the Cardinals on Monday night. Ain't nobody proud of no boys today, given what we saw from the Nats on Tuesday night. More on that to come later in the pod. But hello and welcome. I have a lot for you on the Washington football team. The team on Tuesday signing a tight end. It happens to be someone who did not play football at all in college and has yet to play in the NFL. He's still learning the sport, but he's an athletic freak. Former Tulane basketball player, Samis Reyes, a fascinating signing by Washington for a variety of reasons we shall explore coming up shortly. Also, the latest mock draft of ESPN's Mel Kuyper Jr. came out on Tuesday and included Washington taking a quarterback in the second round. Who is it? And would he make sense for Washington? I'll give you my thoughts and get into what else Mel had going on with Washington's draft. Speaking of quarterbacks and the draft, special guest on the podcast, Matt Spitzer of Hogshaven. Hogshaven, the SB Nation site, all about the Washington football team. Most of you probably know that. Uh, lots of good pieces, though, on Hogshaven. Lots of pieces that make you think. And Matt recently had one of those. Published a study searching for a sweet spot for drafting quarterbacks. Matt is a mad scientist of sorts. You're going to get that vibe from our conversation. But he's a very smart guy, and he has attacked something that not many have tried to attack. Where in drafts should teams be taking quarterbacks? With all of the whiffs at the quarterback position in these drafts in recent years, as I chronicled in episode 36 of this podcast, is there a spot, a range of picks in the draft at which teams are having particular success in taking quarterbacks. Like, we got to figure out a way to do this better. It shouldn't be as bad as it is. The hit rate on quarterbacks in these NFL drafts, especially in first rounds. Also, all of this Julian Edelman talk over the last few days. It's impossible not to have noticed it. I've got something to say regarding one of our guys, one of the best players in Washington football team history, Gary Clark. Here's the deal. If you believe that Julian Edelman is worthy of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and you can, there's a case to be made, but if you think that, then you better believe that Gary Clark is worthy of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I will be sounding off on that a little bit later on. Also, I'll be talking Capitals and Orioles. Second straight dominant win for the Caps on Tuesday night as the new guy, Anthony Mantha, was great in his Caps debut, and we had a doubleheader split for the Orioles on Tuesday. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. Regarding the Caps, I got this tweet from Jesse Leahy of our Caps conversation on Tuesday's podcast. While another cup run would be amazing, the 2018 Caps run was so epic, I'd be at peace if that is all we got out of the Rock the Red era. With Ovechkin only 167 goals away from Gretzky. Make that 166 now. I want this era to end with a Ripken-esque chase for greatness. Love the podcast. Thank you, Jesse. So yeah, we I talked about this on Tuesday's podcast. The idea of it really would be nice for the Capitals to have another deep run in a postseason here because as wonderful as winning the Stanley Cup championship in 2018 will forever be, 
It still is that that's the only time in this Rock the Red era that the Caps have advanced past the second round. Like, with a Hall of Famer in Alex Ovechkin, and not just a Hall of Famer, but arguably the greatest goal scorer ever, with another guy who, to me, is a future Hall of Famer in Nicholas Backstrom, with all these other very good players over the years, right? John Carlson, TJ Oshie, Evgeny Kuznetsov, Braden Holtby, you know, going back to someone like Mike Green, Alexander Semin, if you want to throw old Alex Semin into the mix. The Caps have had so much talent. They're in the postseason every year and to have not gotten beyond the second round all but one time, albeit the Stanley Cup championship winning time, uh, that to me is kind of like, hey, you know, that's great that they won the Cup, but you'd like to see them do more. I I, I guess, you know, I kind of look at it like the Atlanta Braves of the 1990s and 2000s. The Braves every year won the National League East. Every year we're in the Stanley, we're in the Stanley Cup playoffs. We're in the MLB playoffs and yet only came away from that incredible run with one World Series title, right? The 1995 World Series championship. Although with the Braves, at least you can say that they got to multiple World Series. The Braves lost to the New York Yankees in the 1996 World Series, lost to the New York Yankees in the 1999. World Series. So at least you could say, hey, Atlanta won three National League pennants, did only win the one World Series championship, but it's not like there was just that one time and then every other time you were one and done or two and done. That's the way it's been for the Caps, and I'd like to see more. So that's why I'm such a big fan of this trade for Anthony Mantha on NHL trade deadline day on Monday. The Caps are going for it. The Caps recognize, hey, we need to operate with some urgency here. Ovechkin isn't going to be great forever. Backstrom isn't going to be very good forever. Like, we got to capitalize on what we have here. And what the Caps have here is another very good team, as seen by that spanking of the Philadelphia Flyers on Tuesday night. But regarding what Jesse brought up about Alex Ovechkin and the chase for Wayne Gretzky's all-time record for career regular season goals. So Ovechkin did score a goal on Tuesday night. He is now at 729 career regular season goals. He is 165 regular season goals away from tying Wayne Gretzky at 894. Understand this when it comes to the chase for Wayne Gretzky. If you go by adjusted goals, which is a metric that HockeyReference.com came up with, and it's a way of normalizing goal totals for offensive environments because the offensive environment that Wayne Gretzky played in the 1980s is very different than the offensive environment that Alex Ovechkin has competed in, okay? Uh, offense in hockey in the 80s was much easier than offense in hockey today. You look at what goaltenders were wearing. You look at the way hockey was done, like it was a different game back in the 80s. So yeah, Wayne Gretzky's an all-time great. I'm not trying to tell you that he's not, but he played in an environment in which there was big-time inflation when it came to goal totals. Ovechkin has not played in that environment, and yet he still has done what he's done. But per HockeyReference.com, and again, the adjusted goals metric, Alex Ovechkin already has surpassed Wayne Gretzky. As I look at this very early on this Wednesday morning, and the way the reference sites work, like baseballreference.com, profootballreference.com, basketballreference.com, they don't normally update their stats until like later in the morning. So this, I believe, is still not adjusted for Ovechkin having scored the goal in Tuesday night's win. But per hockeyreference.com, what I'm looking at here right now, Alex Ovechkin is tied with Yaramir Yager for number two in NHL history in adjusted goals. Gordy Howe is number one at 925. Ovi and Yager, how about that? Ovi and Yager tied, uh, are tied at 841. Gretzky is fourth at 758. When you adjust 
for players' offensive environments, Ovechkin surpassed the great one years ago. There is a case to be made that Alex Ovechkin is the greatest goal scorer ever. Because Gordie Howe being number one on this list, again, for adjusted goals, Gordie Howe played forever. Gordie Howe played from 1946 to 1980, okay? So, like, you got to factor that into any Gordie Howe conversation. Alex Ovechkin, in terms of a guy who has a normal length, lengthy career, you could argue is the greatest goal scorer in NHL history. That is a very special thing to be able to say. And that's why I'd like to be able to say, ultimately, that the Cavs got beyond the second round more than the one time, even though that one time was glorious. Ovi, of course, in all-timer, changing the way we view the Cavs. Just like one of the great supporters of this podcast, John Grandland is changing the way that real estate is done in the DMV, eliminating the commission. Yes, that thing that nobody likes when it comes to selling a home, that thing is going bye-bye with John Grandland. Outrageous commissions. They've been a staple in real estate for so long. That has never sat right with John Grandland. And my guy, John G., with Real Broker, is now selling homes for free. That's right, for free. Zero commission, and there's no catch. From the moment you dial John's number to the last page of the paperwork signed, he is there. He handles everything. Professional photography, detailed market analysis, a huge syndication network, and so much more to ensure that you're not hunting for buyers for months on end. And when John finds you an offer that you find you're liking, that which you would normally pay to your listing agent stays right in your pocket. And then John helps you find the home of your dreams and you are good to go. Expansive services, high-level services at the lowest commission possible, zero. You can't go lower than zero. John Grandland is changing the way that real estate is done. To find out more about this program and to find your home's value, visit this website, johngsellsforfree.com. You won't regret it. Again, that website is johngsellsforfree.com. Or better yet, call John Grandland, 703 537-6747. Tell him, hey, I want what I heard about on the Al Galdi podcast. Zero commission sale of my home. Again, that phone number, 703-537-6747. Don't give tens of thousands of dollars of your money to someone. Let John Grandland sell your home for free. Tell him Al Galdi sends you. That phone number again, 703-537-6747. All right, so we had two roster moves announced by the Washington football team on Tuesday. The latter of the two was Washington claiming interior offensive lineman Bo Benshall off waivers from the Houston Texans. Yes, we're at that point in the offseason where Washington is claiming the likes of Bo Benshall off waivers. Benshall entered the NFL in 2019 with the Detroit Lions as an undrafted free agent out of Wisconsin. So adding to your interior offensive line inventory is the idea with claiming Bo Benshall off waivers. The other transaction announced by Washington on Tuesday is the one we're going to spend some time on here now, and that is Washington announcing the signing of a tight end, Samis Reyes. And it's so funny how these things play out because it was just on Monday's podcast that we talked about Washington this past Friday releasing a tight end in Thaddeus Moss. And one of the real lessons of that was how so often we, and I include myself in this, get all excited, all giddy over someone who's done nothing, and then that person ends up essentially doing nothing, right? Thaddeus Moss, undrafted free agent out of LSU, 
last year, the son of Pro Football Hall of Fame receiver Randy Moss. Everyone was doing cartwheels when Washington signed Thaddeus Moss as an undrafted free agent. Everyone felt like, oh, this was so shrewd. This was such a player personnel steal. Washington grabbing Thaddeus Moss right at the end of that 2020 NFL draft in terms of the UFAs, the available undrafted free agents. And sure enough, what happened? Thaddeus Moss never took a regular season snap for Washington. He actually got waived by Washington last summer with an injury designation before being signed back to the team via the practice squad spends all of the 2020 season on the reserve slash injured list. And then Washington in this offseason in which it has like zero proven depth at tight end beyond Logan Thomas still sees fit to part ways with Thaddeus Moss in releasing him this past Friday. So I was like, hey, we need to stop doing this. You know, we need to calm down a little bit when it comes to these people for whom there is so much hype and yet so little proven accomplishment. So here we are just a few days later and someone else who has done nothing in the NFL is getting all kinds of hype in this guy, Samis Reyes. So my goal with this segment is to not get too excited about Samis Reyes. But you know what? It is hard not to get at least a little excited with Samis Reyes. And to that end, how about this? The Washington football team scheduled a Zoom press conference for Samis Reyes for Wednesday afternoon. 1 p.m. on Wednesday is to be a Zoom press conference for Samis Reyes as a Washington football team tight end. How often does that happen? Someone who has never taken not only a single NFL snap, but a single collegiate snap gets himself an introductory press conference, the likes of which Samis Reyes is getting on Wednesday afternoon. But this is such an interesting thing that Washington has done. So Samis Reyes was born in Chile. He played college basketball at Tulane for two seasons, 2016-2017 and 2017-2018. But Reyes did not play much in terms of basketball at Tulane. He averaged 7.9 minutes per game over 32 games. So he then decided to try what he had been told to try for a while, football. Reyes spent 10 weeks training at IMG Academy in Florida and then worked out in front of scouts at the University of Florida's Pro Day this past March 31st. The idea for Reyes was for him to enter the NFL via something called the International Player Pathway Program. And this is a program in which players allowed into the program are allocated to NFL teams in one division in each conference. The NFC East and AFC East were actually chosen as the divisions in 2020. And so Washington last summer actually received someone via the International Player Pathway Program. This German defensive lineman, David Bada, uh, he was acquired by Washington last July. So this was the plan, right? Reyes, you go down, you train at IMG, you hopefully get scooped up into this International Player Pathway Program, and maybe somehow, some way, you can carve for yourself an NFL career at the tight end position. However, Reyes did so well at Florida's Pro Day that Washington now has actually signed him as an unrestricted free agent. Washington has skipped the whole international player pathway thing and has said, hey, we're going to go ahead and sign this guy as an unrestricted free agent. How well did Reyes do at Florida's Pro Day? So Kent Lee Platty is a Navy veteran. He is the NFL analytics director for Pro Football Network. And Kent Lee Platty came up with something called the relative athletic score. And the relative athletic score grades a player's measurements and NFL scouting combine slash pro day metrics on a zero to 10 scale compared to his peer group. This is actually a really good idea. The whole point of this is to give context to what these guys do 
at the NFL scouting combines and pro days, right? Because all we hear are a bunch of numbers. What's the guy's height, the guy's weight, the guy's 40 time, the guy's bench press reps total, the guy's vertical jump, the guy's broad jump, et cetera. And we have no idea, like, well, what does that really mean? Is that good? Is that bad? How does that compare to others at his position? So this guy, Kent Lee Platty, came up with a way to essentially normalize these numbers so you can put them into a proper context. Well, Samis Reyes at Florida's 2021 Pro Day generated measurables that included the following. Height of 6'5 and 3 eighths, weight of 260 pounds, 40-yard dash time of 4.65 seconds, bench press of 225 pounds 31 times, vertical jump of 40 inches. Reyes, per the relative athletic score, registered a composite size grade of great, a composite speed grade of great, and a composite explosion grade of elite. The bottom line was that Reyes, per the relative athletic score, tested as the most athletic size-adjusted tight end to ever enter the NFL. Yes, the most athletic size-adjusted tight end to ever enter the NFL. When you adjust what Samis Reyes did, at Florida's Pro Day for Samis Reyes's height and weight, he is the most athletic size-adjusted tight end to ever come into the National Football League. In fact, Reyes in many ways compares favorably with the guy everyone is falling over for, the Florida tight end Kyle Pitts. And there's, of course, some irony here, right? Because Reyes did all these things at the Florida Pro Day. So Reyes and Pitts measured at essentially the same height. Pitts was a quarter inch taller, to be precise. Reyes was 15 pounds heavier, 260 versus 245. Pitts did run a faster 40-yard dash, 444 versus 465. But Reyes blew away Pitts in terms of bench press reps at 225 pounds, 31 versus 22. Yes, Kyle Pitts only repped 225 pounds 22 times. Do you even lift, bro? What's up, bro? Do you even lift? What? Do you even lift, bro? Yeah. All right, you look on that skin delicious, man. You're the girl is bigger than you. Better start lifting. Yes, I love that clip from a few years back. Do you even lift, bro? But Reyes blew away Pitts in terms of the bench press reps of 225 pounds. And Reyes blew away Pitts in terms of the vertical jump. Reyes, a vertical jump of 40 inches. Pitts, a vertical jump of 33 and a half inches. You can always email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I got this email from Chris Rossi. He writes, is it just me or people losing their minds about Pitts? I think he'll be very good, but I also think everyone's getting carried away when they say he's the most freakish tight end prospect we've ever seen. Maybe he'll prove to be a better player than VD, as in Vernon Davis, maybe, but he's definitely not a more freakish athlete. I'd actually argue that Davis had the most impressive measurables of all time. And sure enough, Chris listed what Vernon Davis did at the 2006 NFL scouting combine versus what Pitts did at this Florida Pro Day. And how about some of these differences? Vernon actually ran a faster 40 than Pitts did. Pitts is 44.44. Vernon's 4.39. Vernon had a 42-inch vertical leap. Pitts, again, 33 and a half inches. Vernon repped 225 pounds 33 times. Pitts, again, did it 22 times. Continues, Chris. I'd love to have Pitts. He reminds me of another Gator, Jordan Reed, but there's no way we should trade up to number four for him or anyone. That would be insanity, in my opinion. And then Chris goes on to say, oh, and can we cut Landon Collins? He's worse than Apke. 
if that's even possible. Love the show. Love the intro music. See, that's why I read your email, Chris, because you said that you love the intro music. Uh, look, Landon had a bad 2020. He's not worse than Troy Apke, okay? I mean, let, let's calm down on that one. But yeah, great point about Vernon Davis. He was a combine freak. Of course, all these combine slash pro day achievements don't mean anything if you can't play. Like, it's great if you can bench press 225 pounds 30 plus times. But what does that mean in the middle of the fourth quarter of a tight game in which you got to run across the middle, make a contested catch, and then generate six yards of yak for a first down? Like, what exactly does your bench press rep total back in March and April have to do with what you do in the middle of November? And that's the thing, right? There are the measurables, and then there is that which the guy can do in the big spot in an actual meaningful NFL game. So I'm not one of these people who falls in love with players based on what they do at combines and pro days, but it's hard to ignore when a guy blows someone the likes of Kyle Pitts out of the water the way Samis Reyes did in terms of some of these specific things. It's hard to just completely dismiss that. And so why not take a flyer? on something like this. Why not give the guy a contract? It's going to be a low-level, low-money deal and just kind of see what you got in this person. You know, I think there is a benefit of the doubt that the Washington football team deserves at the tight end position, and it has everything to do with what happened in 2020. Washington writes, signing Logan Thomas as an unrestricted free agent last offseason, a two-year deal for a mere $6.145 million dollars And Logan Thomas ends up having the best season a tight end has had for Washington since the peak days of Jordan Reed. 72 receptions for 670 yards and six touchdowns on 110 targets over 16 games. Just the third tight end in Washington history to have a season with at least 70 catches, at least 650 receiving yards, and at least five receiving touchdowns. The only two guys to do that prior to Logan last season, Jordan Reed in 2015 and Chris Cooley in 2005. Washington has as its tight ends coach, Pete Hayner. And Pete Hayner is a very well-respected tight ends coach. He spent the last nine years prior to last season as, yes, the Carolina Panthers tight ends coach, working with Ron Rivera for the entirety of his tenure as Panthers head coach. But it was under Hayner's watch that Greg Olson became one of the NFL's best tight ends. Pete Hayner also was the tight ends coach for the San Francisco 49ers for six seasons, 2005 through 2010. And Hayner with the 49ers helped to develop, yes, Vernon Davis. Uh, Vernon has spoken very highly of Pete Hayner. Hayner also with the Niners helped to develop Delaney Walker. So Hayner is a guy who knows the tight end position. One of the things that was really noticeable as last season went on was when Ron Rivera would get asked about Logan Thomas in the Zoom press conferences, Ron would always credit Pete Hayner. He would talk about how Pete Hayner identified Logan Thomas as a guy worth pursuing the previous offseason. That, as an aside, was one of the things that really slapped me in the face when it came to the Ron Rivera-Kyle Smith situation and the disintegration of uh, those two working together because Ron would get asked questions about Kyle and really wouldn't praise Kyle all that much. Like, he, he wouldn't, like, put down Kyle, but Ron would not take these opportunities, would not take the bait when it came to saying something nice about Kyle Smith or talking up Kyle Smith. But Ron, unsolicited, would talk up Pete Hayner and talk up how Pete Hayner played a major role in Washington signing Logan Thomas and in Thomas busting out the way that Thomas did last year. I mean, the Logan Thomas thing really is something else. Logan Thomas came to Washington having in his career as a tight end totaled just 35 receptions on 54 targets. And then last season alone, Logan Thomas, 72 receptions on 110 targets. And remember, he's doing this 
for an offense that was abysmal for so much of the season from a passing game standpoint, right? Washington finished as the worst passing offense in the NFL last season for football outsiders DVOA metric. And yet still, Logan Thomas had 72 catches for 670 yards and six touchdowns. So I do think there's a benefit of the doubt that the Washington football team deserves at the tight end spot. And because Washington had done nothing at tight end up until the signing of Samis Reyes on Tuesday, and we all were saying to ourselves, man, Washington has to do something at tight end because there is no proven depth beyond Logan Thomas. I think what that does say very clearly is Washington doesn't think tight end is nearly the need that we think it is. Or Washington doesn't think that tight end is a position at which the team needs to spend big or devote major assets to the way that some of us may think. You know, I wanted Washington to go hard after Jonu Smith in free agency. Every indication is that did not happen. And sure enough, Jonu Smith, right, came off the market quickly, agreeing on a deal with the New England Patriots, who also got the other top free agent tight end in this free agent market in Hunter Henry, right? Both guys end up going to the same team and the Patriots. And as best as we can tell, all right, and we don't know everything, but as best as we can tell, Washington was not a major player player on either guy. But perhaps that was by design because there's something about the tight end position that's really become impossible to ignore. And that is this, how so many of the stud tight ends in the NFL are non-first round picks and how tight end has become a position at which you can find excellence beyond the first round, sometimes well beyond the first round. Like take a look-see around the NFL at some of the better tight ends in the league and examine where each guy got drafted. So let's go with the two guys we just referenced, Hunter Henry and Jonu Smith. Hunter Henry was a second round pick in 2016. Jonu Smith was a third round pick in 2017. How about the biggest money tight end from last offseason? Austin Hooper, now with the Atlanta Falcons. He was taken in the third round of the 2016 draft. So another third round pick. How about George Kittle of the San Francisco 49ers? a 2017 fifth round pick. Travis Kelsey of the Kansas City Chiefs, a 2013 third round pick. A guy who was blown up over the last two seasons, Darren Waller of the Las Vegas Raiders, a 2015 sixth round pick. Mark Andrews of the Baltimore Ravens, major production in recent seasons, a 2018 third round pick. Jared Cook of the New Orleans Saints, a 2009 third round pick. Our guy, Jordan Reed, a 2013 third round pick. I can keep going. Zach Ertz of the Philadelphia Eagles, 2013 second round pick. Kyle Rudolph, now with the New York Giants, 2011 second round pick. Maybe the best tight end ever, Gronk. Rob Gronkowski for the New England Patriots, 2010 second round pick. This is how the position has been done for a while now. Teams don't spend first round picks to get great tight ends, and teams don't have to spend big money to get great tight ends. So it may well be that Ron Rivera, Pete Hayner, look at where Washington is at at tight end and say, hey, first of all, we have Logan Thomas. So we have a guy who we believe in as our TE1. And when it comes to our TE2, we can make hay without spending big money or spending perhaps even major draft capital. Because if you caught my chat with Pro Football Focus senior college analyst Anthony Trish on Monday's podcast, so that would be episode 37, Trish said, once you get past Pitts, this is not a great tight end class. So the idea that Washington is just going to address tight end, say, in the second round or in the third round, I mean, maybe, you know, we'll see. I, I want the board to guide the draft. I want Washington to go best player available. 
but it may not be that Washington ends up going tight end over the first two days of the 2021 NFL draft. And I don't think we should be surprised at this point because if Washington felt that tight end was the screaming need that so many of the rest of us have felt, Washington would have done more at the tight end position until having done nothing until Tuesday and signing the Chilean Samis Reyes. So did I get too excited over Samis Reyes over these last few minutes? I don't think so. I don't think so. But he is an enticing prospect, given the measurables, also given the history of guys going from basketball to football as tight ends and doing well, right? You think about Antonio Gates, you think about Tony Gonzalez, you think about Jimmy Graham, all those guys, division one basketball players turned tight ends, and all three ended up becoming three of the better tight ends in NFL history. Is that going to happen with Samis Reyes? I have no idea, but it's worth a shot. And given what Washington did last season with Logan Thomas, I don't dismiss anything as a possibility. Yeah, and 15 days now are we from the start of the 2021 NFL Draft today, April 14th. First round is Thursday night, April 29th. And so we had the latest mock draft from ESPN NFL Draft analyst Mel Kuyper Jr. coming out on Tuesday. His mock draft 4.0, it features him projecting the first two rounds of the draft and includes the following. Washington taking the Notre Dame linebacker, Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa at number 19. A lot of people want Washington to go linebacker at 19. I keep coming back to BPA, best player available. Don't let your need dictate what you do at 19. But there's no doubt there are two linebackers who I would have zero problem with Washington taking at number 19, Micah Parsons of Penn State and Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa of Notre Dame. It's debatable whether either guy will be there at 19, but it does seem possible. And I, and I, would, I tend to think at least one of those guys should be there at 19, although, you know, you never know how the first round goes. But anyway, here's what Mel had to say about Washington going with JOK at number 19. Quote, Washington could go a few different ways here, including offensive line or wide receiver. I like the fit of Owusu Koromoa, though, as a three-down off-ball linebacker with cover skills. He's extremely versatile. He lined up as a slot corner for the Fighting Irish at times last season and fast. He must improve as a tackler, but he should slot in as an instant impact player for a defense that is already one of the league's best. End quote. Yeah, Owusu Koromoa is a linebacker almost like only a name. He's one of these linebacker safety hybrids, the likes of which we've seen more and more of in recent years. That was the role, you may recall, that uh, our old pal Sua Cravens was supposed to play for Washington. Uh, that ended up not happening for many different reasons. But yeah, Jeremiah Owusu Koromoa in this pass-happy NFL fits in nicely. A linebacker who can cover. We all know how Washington has had so many difficulties finding linebackers who can cover, cover well in recent seasons. And hopefully a guy like Owusu Koromoa, should he be taken by Washington, uh, fills that void. Now it's interesting. Kuyper had Parsons going to the Denver Broncos at number nine. So Mel doesn't see Micah Parsons falling to Washington at 19, as so many of us hope happens. Uh, Mel also had the Virginia Tech offensive tackle, Kristen Darasaw, going to the Minnesota Vikings at number 14. And I say that because Mel had been mocking Darasaw to Washington in Mel's most recent mock drafts. Mel's mock drafts 2.0 and 3.0 had Washington taking Kristen Darasaw at number 19. And this is a loaded offensive draft at offensive tackle. Darasaw is not viewed as the best, but he's viewed among the top three. And Darasaw is viewed as a guy who, in most other drafts, would be viewed as the best left tackle 
in the draft. How about this with Darasaw? Per ESPN, he in the 2020 season, over 264 pass blocking plays for the Hokies, allowed just three pressures and one sack. I mean, that is dominance, especially in an ACC that had a number of quality edge rushers. Darasaw ate them up throughout the 2020 season for Virginia Tech. I would not have any issues with Washington going with Christian Darasaw at 19, but I do think it's debatable whether Darasaw ends up making it to 19. By the way, for more on Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa and Christian Darasaw, check out my chat with Anthony Trish, senior college analyst for Pro Football Focus. He joined me in episode 37 of the Al Galdi podcast. Uh, the only other guy who Mel has mocked to Washington in the first round so far is the Florida receiver, Kadarius Toney. Uh, that's who Mel mocked to Washington in Mel's mock draft 1.0. And we actually talked quite a bit about Tony in my chat with Edgar Thompson, Florida Gators football insider for the Orlando Sentinel. You can find that in episode 36 of the Al Galdi podcast. So Mel has got Washington going linebacker at number 19. And then Mel in the second round does have Washington going quarterback. He has Washington taking the Stanford quarterback, Davis Mills, at number 51. Wrote Mel, quote, Mills is an interesting case as he played in only 14 games at Stanford, which would be the fewest by a drafted quarterback in the last 15 years. And yet, at six foot four, 225 pounds, he has some arm talent traits and looked like a first round pick at times. He also looked like a day three pick at other times. He threw for 428 yards with three touchdowns and three picks in his final college game. If I were running a team, I'd feel much better taking him on day two than I would on day one. And this is a Washington team that could bring him along slowly. He's the type of quarterback talent teams bet on, though. And quote, Mel does have Mills as the number six quarterback being taken. Does not have Florida quarterback Kyle Trask. Texas A&M quarterback Kellen Mond or Georgia quarterback Jamie Newman being taken over the first two rounds. So that's notable because we had that conversation big time on this podcast on Friday in episode 36 of, okay, well, what about Trask for Washington or Mond for Washington or even Newman for Washington? And if you're going to take one of those guys, where do you take one of those guys? Mel doesn't have any of those three guys going over the first two rounds. Does though have Washington taking Mills at number 51. So we haven't really talked about Davis Mills on this show from a standpoint of like where I'm at on him. I mean, Davis Mills is one of the great unknowns in this draft. So he is a guy like Kellen Mond for whom it is believed the stock has been rising. Jim Nagy, the executive director of the Senior Bowl, tweeted the following on April 1st, quote, all the talk on outside continues to be on the big five, parentheses, Lawrence, Wilson, Fields, Jones, Lance, But there's growing buzz inside the league on two QBs, Stanford's Davis Mills and Texas A&M's Kellen Mond. Both are seen as potential starters. Neither is getting out of round two. End quote. Mills is big. He had Stanford's pro day on March 18th, measured as being 6'3 and 3 eighths and 217 pounds. He does have great arm talent. And the other thing about Mills is he is faster than people thought. Mills had a very good pro day. And among the items with that pro day was him displaying an at least somewhat surprising speed. I mean, you know, people have varying views on how truly fast or athletic a quarterback is. But Davis Mills ran a 4.58 40-yard dash at that Stanford pro day. I mean, for comparison's sake, Mond ran a 4.56 40-yard dash at the Texas A&M pro day. So Davis Mills ran a 40 that was pretty similar to what Kellen Mond ran. 
Davis Mills ran a 40 that was similar to what Cam Newton ran. Cam at the 2011 NFL Scouting Combine ran a 4.56 40. Mills again at the Stanford Pro Day a 4.58 40. So the stock of Mills has been rising like we just highlighted. But with Mills, again, the body of work is just so tiny. I mean, just 14 games over three seasons at Stanford. That's it. 14 games, 2018 through 2020, a total of just 438 pass attempts. Now, you could flip that and say, well, he's got so much room within which to grow, and he's far from a finished product, and so you can groom him the way you want to groom him, and who knows how far the ceiling ends up being. You can look at it that way, but you also can say, we don't have any idea about this guy, you know, and he lacks experience, and we just saw with old Dwayne Haskins in Washington how a quarterback lacking experience can end up being a total mess. Here's another thing about Davis Mills, too. Whereas so many college quarterbacks put up gaudy stats, right? Mills did not at Stanford. And I don't think you should just look at the traditional stats for quarterbacks and say, well, this guy's traditional stats are better than that guy's traditional stats. So therefore, this guy is better than that guy. Like, no, it doesn't work that way. But you do like to see some eye-popping stuff from these quarterbacks who you're going to be drafting. And Mills does not have eye-popping numbers. Again, 14 career games at Stanford, 18 touchdown passes versus eight interceptions. I mean, that's not really anything special. Uh, his career yards per pass attempt, 7.92. At the collegiate level, that's not special. His career completion percentage, 65.5. Again, not bad, but not special. Like, I mean, he's the kind of guy who, if you draft and he ends up falling on his face, it's not like there aren't signs. Uh, also, Davis Mills for Pro Football Focus over his 491 career collegiate dropbacks made 17 turnover-worthy throws. So there has been a penchant for the interception-worthy pass by Davis Mills, albeit over a small sample size of work. So it just is a great unknown. Like if you're drafting Davis Mills, you're drafting him because of his potential. It's like the it's, it's like an NBA draft pick. You're drafting him for what he may be, not what he currently is. And guys like that are always scary. Like you, you better love the potential and you better have a ton of faith in your ability to coach him up because otherwise it's the kind of pick that people will look back upon and say, what were you thinking taking that guy in that spot. So Mel projecting Davis Mills to Washington in the second round is the second time in less than a week that a prominent ESPN NFL draft analyst mocked Washington taking a quarterback in the second round. Remember Todd McShay in his mock draft 4.0 that came out last Thursday had Washington taking Kellen Mond in the second round and interestingly had the Chicago Bears taking Kyle Trask with the pick right after Washington's in the second round. McShay had Washington going Mond at 51 and the Bears going Trask at 52. It really has become fascinating with all the quarterbacks in this draft because there is such a wide range of opinions on these guys. Once you get beyond Trevor Lawrence and to a lesser extent, Zach Wilson, there are even some who don't love Zach Wilson, but you know, most people do have Zach Wilson as a number two guy. But once you get beyond those two, I mean, people are all over the place when it comes to Justin Fields, all over the place when it comes to Trey Lance, Mac Jones seems to be liked a whole lot more by people within the league than people outside the league. You got people all over the map when it comes to Kyle Trask and Kellen Mond and Jamie Newman and Davis Mills. And a lot of that has to do with a lack of sample size when it comes to people like Newman and Mills. So who the heck knows, A, where these guys end up being taken, but B, what these guys end up being. In terms of the upper tier of the quarterbacks in the draft, 
Mel did have four quarterbacks being taken over the top six picks and five quarterbacks being taken in the top 10. Mel did include trades once again in his mock. But Trevor Lawrence to the Jacksonville Jaguars at one. Zach Wilson to the New York Jets at two. Mac Jones to the San Francisco 49ers at three. Trey Lance to the Atlanta Falcons at six. And Justin Fields to the New England Patriots at 10. So the mocks continue to be pretty consistent with that, that you're going to get over the top five to six picks, at least four quarterbacks being taken, and over, say, the first 10 to 15 picks, five quarterbacks being taken. But what about all of these quarterbacks? And what about where these quarterbacks are going? For more on taking quarterbacks in NFL drafts, specifically where teams should be taking quarterbacks in NFL drafts, we welcome our special guest. All right, very pleased to welcome the Al Galdi podcast right now, Matt Spitzer of Hogs Haven. Hogs Haven, as many of you listening know, a great site for coverage of the Washington football team. Matt is a terrific writer for Hogs Haven and recently published a study searching for a sweet spot for drafting quarterbacks. Headline, is there a sweet spot for drafting quarterbacks? And so as we continue to prepare for Washington's 2021 draft and continue to wonder about whether Washington should slash will draft a quarterback, perhaps even trade up for a quarterback, Wanted to have Matt on the show. He joins me now. He joins me from his home in Australia. Matt, it's great to have you on, man. How you doing? Oh, great. It's great to be on there. Appreciate you coming on very much. So I guess let's just bottom line this, uh, and then we'll get into the specifics. But is there a sweet spot for drafting quarterbacks? Well, um, that's a more complicated uh, question than might appear from the article I wrote. I used one approach uh, to give one view about uh, where a sweet spot is. So, so the idea, what I did was um, using a risk-reward um, approach. So typically when, when people talk about drafting a quarterback, they talk about the hit rate. Really coming out of a fan discussion on, on Hogs Haven, just a, a comment someone said really quick. Well, and we've been talking about this a while. It's really not just a, a, a matter of the pick that you're using. It's the, the, the risk you're taking with that pick on drafting a quarterback versus the opportunity cost. What else you could have used that pick for? Um, and that's when I said it gets very complicated. It's what you compare it to. Um, there's all sorts that I mentioned it in, in, in this article. There's lots of things I could compare. You're taking a shot at finding your long-term solution quarterback. Um, in this article, uh, this is sort of kind of the tip of the iceberg, and the, I think it's going to be the start of, of a bit of a long project. In this article, I compared your chance of picking a long-term starting quarterback which is a really rare and really valuable thing to suppose you needed immediate help. Like th- this season, clearly the the Washington football team, I was about to call them the Redskins, um, clearly the, the team needs linebackers. They're going into the draft without a starting uh, Will and probably Sam. So they've got to find linebackers somewhere. And that's an immediate need. That's someone who's going to have to start pretty soon if they're going to get it through the draft. Hopefully they will. So I use uh, players that will start by their third year 
and comparing that, that's the, the opportunity risk if you pick a quarterback versus your chance of picking a quarterback. That's a very skewed comparison. And, and I, I only use that comparison to give me something to compare the potential reward of a quarterback to. In terms of the findings of your research, what surprised you, if anything? Um, actually, I, I, I found probably shouldn't have been the huge surprises ever, but I was surprised to see as you go through the first round, there's there's peaks and troughs, and there's this really big dip at picks two and three, which to me is remarkable. You only have one player taken off the board. You now have the opportunity to pick anybody else in the draft. Uh, and when people are picking quarterbacks there, they're, let's see, I'm looking at my graph. It's between a 20% and a slightly under 40%, depending what time frame I use, hit rate, with the second and third overall picks, which is just, that's just shocking. Uh, and especially because, you know, first overall pick, Teams have, in the last decade, what I looked at, have done really well, um, as they should. (laughs) Um, But in that second and third overall picks, it's this dip. Then you get from uh, four to seven and eight to fifteen. I I divided it up into into sort of doubling ranges um, because that's really, if you look at the quality of players or any metric, it, it falls off in a sort of a logarithmic. Hit rate. So, so I was able to sort of expand the rate just to get larger steps. Anyhow, the point is, yeah, there's this peak in the sort of early middle, uh, first round. And then there's another dip towards the, the end of the first, the second half of the first round. And things actually kind of come up in round two. Although your hit rate on round two, let's see, I'm looking at the figures as I'm, I'm saying this. Your hit rate for Drafting quarterbacks in round two is around, what is it, 30%. The chance of the other players that, that you're drafting there um, being a starter by the year three has already fallen. That's down to, that's all, that's under 60%. So it actually, in terms of the risk uh, versus, the, the reward versus opportunity cost, it, it's actually, it's pretty good value. One of the things we're trying to get at here is, is it even worth taking quarterbacks late in first rounds, second rounds, third rounds? Because that's what keeps coming up with Washington is, okay, you're picking at 19. If you don't do the thing of paying the exorbitant price to trade up into, say, the top three, top four, and as you put it, you know, that certainly isn't guaranteeing you anything given some of the recent history within the top three, top four of these drafts at quarterback. Mm-hmm. What's the likelihood truly of finding a franchise quarterback or a long-term starter outside, say, the top 10, top 15? It it doesn't seem to happen often. Most of the guys in the league now who are franchise quarterbacks are first-round picks. It just feels like the hit rate is especially low once you get beyond, you know, like you described, kind of that initial sweet spot, like the upper half of the first round. Mm -hmm. Well, I think what happens in this draft is probably – uh, that's a point I made. Um, this is all, everything that I, I did here, the analysis, it's looking in the past. It's looking in the, it was uh, based on 2009 to 2018. I think things have rapidly changed. 
what's happened is is the price of the salaries for for these guys that we're looking to get um, these franchise quarterbacks has escalated now 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 the asking price for a a good long term starting quarterback is forty million a year and that's clearly caused uh, i i think my my view and this is just an opinion um is that it is a panic. It, it's a panic rush that we're going to see in this draft where we've already seen uh, San Francisco give uh, RG3 slightly less than an RG3 value trade to get to the number three spot. Um, so, I mean, that's a crazy, that's the biggest trade we've seen since RG3. Everybody's speculating now. There was talk going, about Trey Lance, you know, he's he's the one you can probably trade up for now. He's some guy in previous years. If he was entering the draft five years ago, he'd be going in the second round, maybe late first. Now we're talking about, oh, maybe someone could do a, a trade with Detroit to get up at number seven and pick him. So I guess basically what I'm saying is all the analysis I've done, I think you have to push everything forward with, you know, the top five prospects. Uh, another guy, Mac Jones, a few years ago, he'd be going, you know, round two for sure. He might be gone by the time the Redskins are picking. So, I, I, in a way, I think the analysis I've done describes the past. What I find is weird is that everybody is talking about how this is going to be the new normal. Now, Every draft, it's going to be like what looks like is about to happen in this draft with a, a gold rush for quarterbacks in the first round. I don't see how that's sustainable. And the reason why I don't see it, it could be sustainable is that teams aren't going to be increasing their chance of picking a long-term prospect by drafting a guy who is a second-round uh, prospect in the top ten. What they're going to do is the cost of reaching for that guy is going to go up exorbitantly. So unless, I mean, it's just basic economics, supply and demand economics, the, the supply is not changing. There aren't more, colleges aren't producing more first-round prospects. So the, the supply is going to stay the same, but the cost is going to escalate. I think we're going to start seeing busts of the level of the RG3 trade bust become a regular occurrence. That's not going to last very long. You would think not. <laughs> you would think not. And and that brings me to my final question for you. Why do you think there are so many whiffs, especially when it comes to the upper tier of the first round with these quarterbacks? Like whether you're talking about a Sam Darnold or a Mitchell Trubisky you know, these recent trade-ups, they're not working out. That's one of the things that I know has, has given me cause for pause with all this stuff about Washington maybe trading up to number four. It's like the recent history screams don't do it. And even if it kind of sort of works out, like say the Rams getting Jared Goff, it still doesn't work out because the Rams want to part ways with Jared Goff and he helped to get him to a Super Bowl. So why do you think this is? The, the teams, they're swinging wildly at these quarterbacks, especially like top three picks, and it's just not working out. You'd think we'd be more efficient with this, but it doesn't seem that we are right now. Well, I, I think one one thing, that's that's something that I've been thinking about a lot. Uh, um, 
it is the case. It's largely the bad teams, um, the Jets um, in particular, um, and Washington who are making these sorts of trades. Um, I, I did a earlier in the season. I did a look at I, I did a look at teams trading into the top ten. I looked at all of the trades that have been done in the cap era involving a top 10 pick for a quarterback. The only really good team that did that is Kansas City to get Patrick Mahomes. And they only traded up to number 10 to get him. Um, but out of all of those trades, the only real hits were Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes out of about, I think it was um, 11 trades there are two funny ones that, that I, I sort of had to do a lot of explaining about. There were the two when San Diego picked a quarterback who didn't want to play for them, Michael Vick and, and Eli Manning. Those you could call those successful too, but they weren't they weren't the normal scenario where a team wants a guy and trades to get up. It was more God, this guy didn't want to play for us. Anybody want him? Um, so, so I, I don't know if those count. But aside from those, you know, the thirteen—I think it was thirteen trades I counted. You have two good outcomes, and the rest were failures. Golf is one, though. Golf is a, a bit of a funny one because if you look at where the team was before they traded for him. And you look at where they got to in a couple of years after trading for him, he got them to a Super Bowl. They were not a good team before that. They decided he uh, wasn't the franchise guy. I think that they might wind up regretting that in a few years. Who knows, really? But I don't think he quite fits the mold. He's not Sam Darnold. He's not RG3. But anyhow, uh, when, when I did the analysis of all the trades that have been done, there are a whole bunch of different outcomes and reasons why they might have failed. I think it's largely, it, in the past, it's been the bad teams uh, doing this. It, it's not, uh, there are some perennial, in the cap era, in the late cap era, there have been a few teams that have worked out how to win consistently. You know, New England, uh um, Seattle, uh, Baltimore, uh, Green Bay. Those teams aren't trading into the top ten to, to pick quarterbacks. No, it, it makes sense. And there's no perfect explanation for it, so that certainly seems to be as good as any. It's a fascinating topic. I, I really find this interesting. I enjoyed your article very much. And, uh, Matt, appreciate the time. Hey, hey, glad to. Uh, I'm always, uh, you know, being in Australia, I don't get much chance to talk to people about Washington football, so it's, it's great to have that opportunity. And, uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, you see, even in Australia, even down under, they care about our Washington football team. You tell me what you think. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. Speaking of Twitter, I tweeted something on Tuesday that got some attention. It had to do with New England Patriots receiver Julian Edelman having announced his retirement on Monday. So Julian Edelman, one of the all-time great receivers for the Pats, spent his entire 12-season career with New England, which took him in the seventh round of the 2009 NFL Draft at a Kent State. Edelman over his 12 seasons with the Pats, a part of three Super Bowl championships and five AFC championships. Isn't that amazing? Like if you've played for the Pats for any length of time over the last 20 years, you've got yourself 
more likely than not, multiple rings and a bunch of conference championships. Like, that's just nuts when you take a step back and consider that. But Julian Edelman retires as number two in Pat's history in regular season receptions, number four in Pat's history in regular season receiving yards, number nine in Pat's history in regular season receiving touchdowns, and number four in Pat's history in regular season all-purpose yards. But Julian Edelman is best known for his work in the postseason. Julian Edelman is one of the most prolific receivers in NFL postseason history. 19 career playoff games, 118 receptions for 1,442 yards and five touchdowns on 180 targets. The 118 career playoff catches are number two all-time, Jerry Rice number one at 151. The 1,442 career playoff receiving yards for Edelman, number two all-time, Jerry Rice's 2,245 career playoff receiving yards ranked number one. Edelman, remember, too, was the MVP of the Pats' most recent Super Bowl win, that 13-3 victory over the Los Angeles Rams in Super Bowl 53. Edelman in that game, 10 catches for 141 yards on 12 targets. And so there's been a lot of conversation over the last 48 hours or so of, well, is Julian Edelman a Pro Football Hall of Fame worthy candidate? Is Julian Edelman worthy of being inducted into Canton because truth be told his regular season body of work isn't that impressive like he's an all-time great receiver for the Pats but it's not really like an all-time great regular season receiver in the NFL but it's what he has done in the postseason that really makes you at least consider the candidacy like here's a guy good in the regular season all-time great in the postseason how much does what you do in the postseason count when it comes to being a Hall of Famer so there's been a lot of discussion about this I would just say this about Julian Edelman, okay? And I think, like, if he goes into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, it's not some kind of an outrage. Because, again, he is one of the all-time great playoff performers. But if you say that Julian Edelman is worthy of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, then you better be saying that Washington all-time great receiver Gary Clark is worthy of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You know, it's funny. We have spent a lot of time over the years on Joe Jacoby and him not being in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I have said many times Brian Mitchell deserves to be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And there's a number three to that group. And there are others you could bring up as well. But like the big three to me are Jacoby, B. Mitch, and yes, Gary Clark. My favorite Washington player growing up as a kid. We had his starting lineup figure in my house. I met him at Errol's video in North Potomac, Maryland many years ago. I love me some Gary Clark. But like for all of the talk about Edelman over the last few days here, it just cracks me up. I'm like, hey, uh, what about Gary Clark? Gary Clark, first of all, was far more durable than Edelman was. Gary Clark played in the NFL for 11 seasons, 1985 through 1995. Over those 11 years, listen to this, Gary Clark played in 167 of a possible 176 regular season games. 94.9% of the regular season games in which Clark could play, he did play. For comparison's sake, Edelman, over his 12 NFL seasons, 2009 through 2020, played in just 137 of a possible 192 regular season games, 71.4%. Clark played in what was much less of a pass-happy and much less of a pass-friendly NFL, right? Today's NFL is so different than the NFL that Gary Clark played in in the 80s and 90s. And yet, even when you consider that, Gary Clark in his career 
65 regular season touchdown receptions. Edelman had just 36. Even if you account for the difference in games played, Gary Clark had 29 more career regular season touchdown receptions than Edelman had. That's not nothing. Like, it's very hard to ignore something like that. And while, yes, Edelman was mostly a slot receiver, so you, it, it is kind of apples to oranges, it is worth examining each guy's career yards per catch. Gary Clark in his regular season career averaged 15.5 yards per catch. Edelman averaged 11 yards per catch. And then there's this. Gary Clark played with a number of different starting quarterbacks over his eight seasons with Washington, right? Joe Theismann, Jay Schrader, Doug Williams, Mark Rippon. Now, all four guys had their moments. It's not like all four guys were terrible, but it's not like it was the same guy season in, season out at quarterback for Washington during Gary Clark's time with the team. He, Art Monk, Ricky Sanders, right? The posse, they received passes from a number of different quarterbacks over the years. Edelman, of course, played most of his career catching passes from the GOAT, Tom Brady. So Clark did what he did, and not just an environment that was much less of a pass-happy, much less of a pass-friendly environment. Clark did what he did despite catching passes from a bunch of different quarterbacks as compared to Edelman, who didn't just essentially catch passes from one quarterback, but caught passes from the greatest quarterback of all time. And then finally, yes, Edelman was outstanding in the postseason. You cannot take that away from him. But you know who also was great in the postseason? Gary Clark. Gary Clark, 14 career playoff games, 58 receptions for 826 yards. And We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Six touchdowns. One more postseason receiving touchdown that Edelman had. So if you want to tout Julian Edelman as being Pro Football Hall of Fame worthy, go ahead. If you want to start carving out the bust for Julian Edelman in Canton, go ahead. But don't do that and not do the same thing for Gary Clark. Gary Clark is Pro Football Hall of Fame worthy. And all this Julian Edelman discussion of the last few days, to me anyway, is a reminder of that regarding Clark. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care 
for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. Well, how do you like what's going on with our Capitals right now? A three-game winning streak during which they have outscored the opposition 18-5. Is that good? 18-5. The Capitals with a 6-1 win over the Philadelphia Flyers at Capital One Arena on Tuesday night. So the Caps now have won their last two games by a combined score of 14-2. You had the 8-1 win at the Boston Bruins on Sunday night. You had this 6-1 win over the Flyers at Capital One Arena on Tuesday night. What's so funny about this three-game winning streak is the toughest of the three wins came against the worst team in the NHL, that 4-3 victory at the Buffalo Sabres on Friday night. But the Caps were so good to begin this game, especially on Tuesday night. This has been a bugaboo with the Caps at various points this season, right? The slow starts. Uh, Slow, the start was not on Tuesday night. What a first period by the Caps. They win the first period 4-1, including going 2-2 on the power play. More on the power play in just a bit. The Caps in the first period, 19 shots on goal to the Flyers' 9. The Caps in the first period per natural stat trick, 20 five-on-five shot attempts to the Flyers' 15, including five five-on-five high-danger shot attempts to the Flyers' two. So your success in the first period wasn't just about the power play. You own the Flyers at five-on-five. Caps did get worked in the puck possession battle over the final two periods. Caps over the final two periods for natural stat trick, 17 five-on-five shot attempts to the Flyers' 33. But that first period set the tone. That first period included the establishing of a cushion, a 4-1 Capitals lead and the Caps ended up rolling from there. I mentioned the power play. Caps go three for three on the power play on Tuesday night. It's one thing to have three power play goals in a game. Caps, in fact, had three power play goals in that 8-1 win at the Bruins on Sunday night. But the Caps in that game, three of six on the power play. How often does a team in hockey get at least three power play goals in a game and being perfect on the power play in that game? Three for three were the Caps on the power play on Tuesday night. So you're now looking at six for nine on the power play over the last two games. Tom Wilson had a power play goal 11-32 into the first period for a 2-1 Caps lead, and he had a primary assist. Nicholas Backstrom had a power play goal 16-25 into the first period for a 3-1 Caps lead, and he had a secondary assist that was a milestone, moved him past Daniel Alfredson for the fourth most regular season assist by a Swedish-born player in NHL history at 7-14. The Speeds have done quite well in hockey over the years, right? You got Nicholas Lidstrom, you got Henrik Sedin, you got Matt Sundin, you got Alfredson, you got Daniel Sedin, you got Peter Forsberg, you got Henrik Zetterberg. I mean, all kinds of names over the years. Swedish-born players having success in the NHL, and Nicholas Backstrom is among the best. Again, he's now number four all-time among Swedish-born NHLers in terms of career regular season assists. And then speaking of milestones, Alex Ovechkin, right? What do I keep saying? Every goal this guy scores marks some kind of milestone. Well, Ovi on Tuesday night, 
power play goal 5-10 into the third period for a 6-1 Caps lead. And Ovi had a primary assist. So Wilson, Backstrom, Ovechkin, each with a power play goal and an assist. But for Ovi, his goal, the 728th career regular season goal for him, putting him three goals from tying Marcel Dion for number five on the NHL's all-time regular season goals list. So the power play was great. The Capitals got a goal from the new guy. In fact, a goal and an assist from the new guy. Yes, Anthony Mantha, who we talked so much about on Tuesday's podcast off the Caps, making the big move on NHL trade deadline day on Monday to get Mantha from the Detroit Red Wings. Mantha hits the ground running for the Caps. He, in his Caps debut, has a goal, a secondary assist, a game-high six shots on goal, and is number two on the Caps in five-on-five shot attempt percentage in the game per natural stat trick at 60.9. One of the things I talked about with you regarding Mantha on Tuesday's podcast, right, was, yeah, the overall scoring numbers for Mantha aren't that impressive, but what Anthony Mantha has done in his career is be a major driver of play. The puck possession numbers are very favorable to Anthony Mantha. Anthony Mantha came to the Caps number two among all NHL players, each with at least 200 games over the last five seasons in regular season relative five-on-five shot attempt percentage at 6.6. And Mantha lived up to that mantra in his Caps debut on Tuesday night. With Mantha on the ice in five-on-five situations on Tuesday night, the Caps had 14 five-on-five shot attempts for nine five-on-five shot attempts against. Puck possession was in control of the CAPS Caps with Mantha on the ice on Tuesday night. Did a really nice job. Mantha serving as the Caps' second-line left winger, playing with Nicholas Backstrom and TJ Oshie. So good to see Mantha get off to a good start in a Caps jersey. Nice goal by Mantha as well. Even strength goal 922 into the second period for a 5-1 Caps lead as he scored on a wrister from the high slot off a great drop pass by TJ Oshie. Connor Sheary had another productive game for the Caps. Boy, has he been a bright spot this season. A goal and two assists. And John Carlson had two assists. So for Carlson, that's now exactly 400 career regular season assists over exactly 800 career regular season games. That game on Tuesday night was the 800th career regular season game for Carlson. He becomes just the 27th defenseman in NHL history to record at least 400 assists over his first 800 career regular season games. There was so much to like from a point producing standpoint for the Capitals on Tuesday night. Basically, everybody got in on the act, just like you saw in that 8-1 win at the Bruins on Sunday night. And we didn't even mention the goaltending. Ilya Samsonov was terrific on Tuesday night. He was the Caps starting goaltender for the first time in three games. He stopped 29 of 30 shots on goal, including all 21 shots on goal that he faced over the final two periods. Nothing to complain about with Samsonov. Caps, by the way, go two of two on the penalty kill. I mentioned the proficiency of the power play in recent games. How about the penalty kill recently? Caps now are 23 for 25 on the penalty kill over the team's last nine games. So the Caps get the win, improved to 28-11-4, back to being alone atop the East Division. 60 points for the Capitals, two points ahead of the New York Islanders, four points ahead of the Pittsburgh Penguins, 10 points ahead now of the Boston Bruins. And how about this with the Caps? You know, one thing I have referenced previously is, well, are the Caps as good as the record suggests? And something like goal differential has suggested maybe not. But the Caps, in no small part because of these last two games, 8-1 win at the Bruins on Sunday night, 6-1 win over the Flyers on Tuesday night, 14-2 in total. The Caps' goal differential now is up to plus 25 on the season. 
just two less than that of the Islanders, who are at plus 27, three less than that of the Penguins, who are at plus 28. So the goal differential isn't nearly as underwhelming as it had been. It's funny how that can change like on a dime, as it has for the Capitals here over the last two games. But great to see this for the Caps. They have another softie coming up Thursday night, home to the Buffalo Sabres at 7, then at the Philadelphia Flyers Saturday afternoon at 12.30, then at the Boston Bruins Sunday at noon, and then comes a five-game gauntlet, three consecutive games against the New York Islanders, followed by two consecutive games against the Pittsburgh Penguins. Caps are at the Isles Thursday night, April 22nd, and Saturday night, April 24th, and home to the Isles Tuesday night, April 27th. Then the Caps host the Penguins in back-to-back games on Thursday night, April 29th, and Saturday night, May 1st. Remember, in this reconfigured NHL for this 2020-2021 season, it's nothing but intra-division games. The East Division is loaded. Caps are having to face a bunch of good teams, but in that East Division, ain't no team better than the Capitals, alone in first at 60 points and coming off two consecutive blowout wins. All right, so a great Tuesday night for the Capitals and an awful Tuesday night for the Nationals. There's no other way to say it. A 14-3 loss at the St. Louis Cardinals in Game 2 of a three-game series. That's fall to 2-6 and six on the season. And the biggest item from this game, clearly, Steven Strasburg getting shelled. Eight runs, seven earned in four innings. He gave up eight hits, three homers and five singles. He issued five walks, two of which were intentional. He had just three strikeouts. And how about this? He threw just 50 of his 88 pitches for strikes. 38 of his 88 pitches were balls. That is not what we're accustomed to seeing from Steven Strasburg. This was obviously very disappointing. This also, to me, was surprising because Strasburg had looked so good in his first start of this season. Strasburg in that 2 nothing Nats loss to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park in Game 2 of the doubleheader sweep last Wednesday afternoon was terrific. Six scoreless innings, eight strikeouts, gave up just one hit, a single, issued two walks. You felt like, okay, Steven Strasburg missing so much of 2020 due to carpal tunnel neuritis, dealing with that calf situation during spring training. But here we go, off and running in the 2021 regular season, and then we get what we got on Tuesday night. Now, why did Strasburg struggle? That's the question. The television feed of the game did show Strasburg at one point sitting on a chair in the tunnel, rubbing his right shoulder. And if you have followed the Nationals for any length of time, you know the sirens go off when you hear or see something like that. Because Steven Strasburg, for years, has been known to do stuff like this. When he's hurting, right? He grabs at a shoulder. He grabs at his neck or his trapezius muscle or, you know, a calf or something like that. He sweats like a pig whenever it's hot outside. Like, Strasburg, if it's not totally right, you know about it because you can see it. He wears it. And also with Strasburg is this, when he has struggled in his career, which really hasn't been that often, it almost always has been due to some kind of injury. So heck yeah, you see this on the television feed and you wonder what's happening here. Why is he grabbing at his shoulder? Now it's worth pointing out the television feed of the game comes to us from the St. Louis Cardinals television team. The way it's working again this season in Major League Baseball is that you don't have the television crews for both teams in ballparks. Only television cameras for home teams. Television crews are shooting games in this season. That's obviously a COVID-19 protocol. So this shot of Strasburg did come 
from the Cardinals television crew. But take a listen to Davey Martinez during his post-game Zoom press conference. Not happy was Davey. Not proud of the television boys was Davey when it came to that shot at Strasburg. Here you go. Honestly, that's the first first I've heard of it was, you know, after the game. Um, and quite honestly, that shot shouldn't have been shown. So I'm a little perturbed about that. That camera's not supposed to be down in that tunnel. Sure. Okay. So obviously you don't like that that was seen, but, I mean, does that well, worry you at all? Yeah, I, I, pitchers do all kinds of stuff down there. That's why it's not um, – I've seen guys stretching hamstrings. I've seen, you know, so – what I do know is he never complained about, about any shoulder issues or anything. Yeah, I tell you, I actually get where Davey's coming from on that. And Strasburg wasn't happy about that shot being shown either. And I get where Strasburg is coming from on that. These guys are entitled to some privacy. And especially when you just see snapshots of things, what people can do is they'll take something and misinterpret it or exaggerate it or view it as, oh my God, this means the end of the world, when maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's something that happens all the time and we just don't often see it. So to us, it's abnormal, but to these guys, it's run of the mill. It's something that goes down frequently. So I get where Davey and Strasburg are coming from on that, but you can't unsee it. And now that we've seen it, you got to wonder, is Strasburg ailing or was he just off on Tuesday night? And there's nothing more to it than that. Here was Davey on why Strasburg struggled on Tuesday night. Oh, we, we you know, we watched him. He, he just was, you know, mechanics were a little off, but he didn't, um, and we talked to him. He didn't, he didn't complain about anything. You know, for, for us, it's part of the process. He hasn't pitched in a year. We got to get him out there. We got to, you know, we got to stretch him out. We got to build him up. Um, but he, he was just, he was just a tad off today. You know, his last outing was good that today he, he wasn't as sharp. So, um, you know, I'll have four or five days of, you know, to work with Hickey and get him back on track. So when you see the diminished velocity, that wasn't a red flag in your mind. That was just him not quite being right. Yeah, I mean, you know, last not, outing, not quite being all the way back. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I said, you know, he was out. He had a good outing, first outing. Um, the trainers never said anything. Trainers, we, we were there, we were watching him. Um, I, I just thought his mechanics, he's followed to the first base side. I thought his mechanics were a little off. Um, but this is something, you know, for, for me, you know, for him, we got he's got to work through it. He's got to get out there. And he's got to work through it. So there is mystery, at least somewhat, as to why Strasburg struggled on Tuesday night. But what we do know with certainty is he did struggle, and he looked bad. Strasburg in the bottom of the first gave up a run on a one-out first-pitch solo homer by Paul Goldschmidt on a bob to left field. Strasburg in the bottom of the third allowed four runs. He gave up a first-pitch leadoff single to Tommy Edmond, a one-out two-run homer by Nolan Arenado to left field, a one-out six-pitch walk of Paul DeYoung, despite him having been down in the count at one point, one-two, so Strasburg couldn't put him away, and a one-out two-run homer by Matt Carpenter on a shot to right field for a 5-1 Cardinals lead. And Strasburg later that inning issued a two-out eight-pitch walk of Andrew Kisner, despite him having been down in the count at one point, 0-2. You go from being down 0-2 to working an eight-pitch walk against Strasburg. That's not the Strasburg we know. Strasburg did then toss a scoreless fourth, but he began that inning by giving up back-to-back singles, including a leadoff single by the Cardinals starting pitcher Jack Flaherty on an 0-2 pitch. Again, Strasburg unable to put the batter away in this instance, the opposing pitcher, and then Strasburg in what was ultimately a nine-run Cardinals fifth inning get charged with three runs, two earned. Matt Carpenter began the bottom of the fifth by reaching base via an error. 
by the third baseman, Starlin Castro, who couldn't catch a liner. Strasburg then issued a five-pitch walk of Dylan Carlson and gave up a single to Andrew Kisner to load the bases and then was pulled by Davey Martinez. So bad night for Strasburg and a bad night for Luis Avilan, the man who relieved Steven Strasburg. You know, it's funny, Nats used four relievers in this 14-3 loss at St. Louis on Tuesday night. The other three relievers ended up doing well, but the first reliever, he was atrocious. Luis Avilan truly had one of the worst games you'll ever see a reliever have. He comes into the game uh, to be fair to him, in a tight spot, okay? Bases are loaded, nobody out, bottom of the fifth. Okay, not ideal. Not not a soft landing, okay? I understand that. But your job as a reliever is to be a fireman, not to be an arsonist. And Luis Avilan walked into the fire and poured a gallon of gasoline on the darn thing. He does not help things at all. Gives up an RBI single to Justin Williams, a pinch full count RBI sack fly to Austin Dean, despite him having been down in the count at 1.02. A one-out four-pitch walk of Tommy Edmond to reload the bases. A one-out first-pitch two-run single by Paul Goldschmidt. A one-out RBI single by Nolan Arenado. A one-out RBI single by Paul DeYoung that included a fielding error by Juan Soto in right. A one-out RBI sack fly by Matt Carpenter. A two-out single by Dylan Carlson. A two-out five-pitch walk of Andrew Kisner to reload the bases. And a two-out two-run single by Justin Williams. You talk about death by a thousand paper cuts. That's what this Luis Avilan outing ended up being. He officially allows six runs, three earned in one inning on six hits, all singles and two walks. I mean, normally in a spot like this, you give up a three-run bomb or, you know, a two-run double, something like that. No, six singles and two walks given up by Luis Avilan. And how about this? I mentioned Steven Strasburg and how many balls he threw in his outing. Luis Avilan throws 38 pitches on Tuesday night, just 17 for strikes. 21 of Avilan's 38 pitches go for strikes. I mean, this is the kind of outing that gets a guy DFA'd. We'll see. You know, Avilan did have a good spring training but this is not someone who's, you know, been with the Nats for years and has his lengthy resume with the team. Luis Avilan is a journeyman reliever, and uh, the journey may continue after that performance on Tuesday night. Uh, but like I said, the rest of the Nationals relievers did well. Wander Suero tossed a perfect sixth inning. Austin Voth tossed a scoreless seventh inning. And then the Nats did the thing that you will see teams getting blown out do, and that is use a position player to pitch. Hernan Perez tossed the eighth inning. It was a perfect eighth inning that included two strikeouts. So that was actually a fun thing to watch. Hernan Perez throwing balls, you know, in like the 60s and 70s miles per hour, but he gets two strikeouts. Strikes out Justin Williams on four pitches. Strikes out a pinch hitting Lane Thomas on three pitches. But yeah, Strasburg bad. Avilan, uh, arguably worse. I mean, depending on how you want to view things. Uh, way too little offensively for the Nats in this 14-3 loss at the Cardinals on Tuesday night. Victor Robles 0 for 3 with a couple of strikeouts. Did get hit by a pitch. Uh, Trey Turner, who has not had a good series so far, 0 for 3 with two strikeouts. Josh Bell 0 for 3 with a walk. Uh, Starling Castro 0 for 4 with a strikeout. Alex Avila was the Nats starting catcher, made his regular season Nats debut 0 for 3 with a walk and a couple of strikeouts. Nats also were sloppy in the field. Uh, Nats committed their first two official errors of the year. Uh, Starling Castro, I mentioned this, failing to catch that Matt Carpenter liner that began the Cardinals' nine-run fifth inning uh, for the first official error for the Nats this season. Nats end up being the last team in the majors to commit an error 
this season. I mean, errors to me, it's not the way you judge defense. You know, you should look at things like defensive runs saved and outs above average, but uh, errors, you know, that, that is like that traditional back of the baseball card defensive stat. And for whatever it's worth, and that's do end up being the last team in MLB to commit an error in the 2021 regular season. Juan Soto had his error, uh, unable to field cleanly a ball during that Cardinals nine run fifth. And then there was something like this, Kyle Schwarber and left field falling onto his stomach while catching a deep flyout by Justin Williams at the warning track to end the Cardinals four run third. The Nats were the worst defensive team in baseball last year per defensive run saved. And uh, they didn't look any better in this game on Tuesday night. That, that was a rough watch. Uh, for them. In terms of bright spots, Juan Soto did go one for three with an RBI. He had a two-out RBI double in the top of the third. Schwarber was good at the plate, two for four. He had a first pitch leadoff double in the top of the seventh and a one-out full count single in the Nats two-run ninth, despite having been down in the count at 1.02. Oh, uh, Josh Harrison had a very good night at the plate, three for four with two RBI. Had a two-out single in the top of the second, had a two-out single to left center on an 0-2 pitch in the top of the fourth, and Harrison had a two-out first pitch, two-run double in the top of the ninth. But going back to that Harrison two-out single to left center in the top of the fourth, he gets thrown out, trying to stretch the hit into a double. Now, it did look like he was safe at second, okay? And the Nats challenged the call, but the call was upheld. But if you watch the game, certainly if you watch the replay, it looked like Harrison's left hand touched second base before the Cardinals' second baseman, Matt Carpenter's glove, touched Harrison's left hand. But it was really hard to tell you're supposed to have definitive proof to overturn the initial call. I don't know that you had the definitive proof. And so Harrison gets called out. But another instance early this season of the Nationals making it out on the base pass. I mean, that was an unnecessary stretch by Harrison. If you're going to do that, you better be safe. And obviously, he ended up not being safe. Bad night for the Nats. A bad start to the season. I mean, I don't know what else is supposed to say. The two and six on the year. And their horses largely are back. I mean, you're still waiting for John Lester to be good to make a start. But otherwise, the lineups that we've seen these last two games are more or less the lineups that Davey Martinez envisioned coming into the season. You know, I guess save on Tuesday night for Avila being the starting catcher as opposed to Jan Gomes. Nats, though, can still win the series. Game three at the Cardinals Wednesday afternoon at 1.15. Joe Ross versus Adam Wainwright. Well, it was a very bad Tuesday night for the Nationals, but it ended up being a halfway decent Tuesday for the Orioles. Double header split with the Seattle Mariners at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. A 4-3, eight-inning loss in game one, but then a 7-6 walk-off win in game two. And so I do believe we can play our favorite Joe Angel soundbite. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, thank you, Joe. Orioles get to five and six on the year. Did have to deal with more bad starting pitching in this doubleheader. The Orioles' number one starter, John Means, having some issues in that 4-3, eight-inning loss in game one, giving up three runs in five innings. He gave up five hits, two homers, and three singles, and two walks. Did have five strikeouts and did end well. Uh, The three runs came over the first two innings. Means then retired 10 of the final 11 batters he faced. And then in the nightcap, Dean Kramer had all kinds of problems. He gave up four runs in three innings. He actually had an opposite outing as compared to Means. Means started off poorly, ended well. Kramer started off well, ended poorly. Kramer tossed two scoreless innings, but then gave up four runs in the top of the third that featured a two-out full count three-run homer by Jose Marmalejos. Orioles, though, showed some moxie 
in this doubleheader. The loss in game one, four, three, and eight innings. Remember, that's extra innings because these doubleheader games are seven inning games. Uh, Orioles in that game had just five hits and three walks, but overcame a three nothing fifth inning deficit to force the extra inning. O's tied the game at three in the bottom of the seventh on a two out double by Ryan Mountcastle, followed by a two out RBI single by DJ Stewart. So good to see two of the Orioles' younger players, you know, two guys you hope prove to be building blocks for the future coming through in game one. And then in game two, the Orioles win 7-6 in walk-off fashion. The O's erased a 4-0 third inning deficit by scoring four runs in the bottom of the third. And the O's overcame Adam Pletko, giving up a game-tying two-run homer to Sam Haggerty in the top of the seventh by rallying with two outs in the bottom of the seventh to ultimately get a run on a walk-off single by Ramon Urias, the second baseman in both games of the doubleheader. Urias on that walk-off single was actually down in the count at one point, one-two, and Urias came through in game one. He hit a two-out, two-run homer in the bottom of the fifth in that game. So a little bit of spunk from our tanking, rebuilding Orioles. Game three against the Mariners Wednesday night at 7.05. Matt Harvey will face Justin Dunn. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Don't forget on Wednesday, the introductory Zoom press conference for the Washington football team's new tight end, Samis Reyes, our new Chilean tight end who has never taken a snap at tight end at either the collegiate or NFL level, but he's getting his own introductory Zoom press conference. So we'll have some fun with that on the show on Thursday. In addition to continuing to prepare you mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually for whatever Washington ends up doing in the 2021 NFL draft. Have a great rest of your Wednesday. I'll talk to you on Thursday. What's up, bro? Do you even lift? What? Do you even lift, bro? Yeah. All right, you look on that skin delicious, man. You know, the girl's bigger than you. Better start lifting. <laughs>